Father, we praise you and thank you that you have gathered us freely as you have in this building today in order to open the family book and hear from you. We pray uh, the Spirit's blessing upon your word this morning. We pray that we would be people who would be transformed and changed even as we sit under the word this morning. And may we leave from this place later with joy on our tongues, with uh, a willingness to witness on our tongues because of your greatness and your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on a spring afternoon when David should have been fighting with his men against the Ammonites that he took a leisurely stroll all by himself on his palace roof, and from his vantage point there on the roof, David spotted the woman Bathsheba washing herself. And many of us know the story. David committed adultery with that married woman, Bathsheba, and in an effort to cover up his transgression, David had Bathsheba's husband Uriah liquidated, And the collateral damage was that several other soldiers died alongside Uriah. Well, it was at least nine months later, after the widowed Bathsheba had given birth to David's child, that God's prophet Nathan came to David with a devastating parable. A parable that God used in a mighty way to bring home to David the reality and the significance of his sin. And of course, the whole story that I'm talking about can be found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. The verse from those chapters that I want us to focus on as we begin today is 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, where... After digesting Nathan's devastating parable, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now that statement, I have sinned against the Lord, is really the starting point for us as we look today at Psalm 51. Because what Psalm 51 is, is it's essentially an elaboration or an extended meditation written by David on that very moment in 2 Samuel 12:13 when David came to that realization I have sinned against the Lord. Turn to Psalm 51. Notice the heading over Psalm 51. Uh, Before we even get to verse 1, the heading reads as follows. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him, notice, after he had gone into Bathsheba. So the setting is this. Nathan has given his parable, and David has recognized with deep pangs of conscience, he's recognized that he has sinned against God. And David pens Psalm 51. Let's look at the psalm verse by verse. David begins by pleading with God for forgiveness. Have mercy on me, O God. That is, God, would you show favor to me 
that I do not deserve. Have mercy on me, O God. David in this psalm will plead for forgiveness in six different ways. The first is here, have mercy. The second is a little later in the same verse, and also down in verse 9, blot out my transgressions. The third way that David pleads for forgiveness is in verse 2, and also down in verse 7, wash me. The fourth is also in verse 2, cleanse me. The fifth is in verse 7, purge me. And the sixth, is in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins. Six different ways that David pleads in this psalm for the forgiveness of God. You get the distinct feeling, listen, that all of David's soul yearns and is pining to be right with God. Now we can learn a great deal about God-honoring repentance By reading this 51st Psalm. But back to verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. Now notice. According to your steadfast love. According to. David here expresses the basis, doesn't he? Or the grounds of his appeal for God's forgiveness. And the basis, the grounds of his appeal, notice, is nothing less than the character and the nature of God himself. David pleads forgiveness based on the character of God, based on what David knows to be true of God. Have mercy, O God, according to your steadfast love, in the English Standard Version. David uses covenant language with this talk of God's Steadfast love. David was in covenant with God. And God would not break his loyalty and his faithfulness to the covenant, even though David had proven to be a covenant breaker. God would remain faithful even when David was faithless. David pleads mercy. He pleads undeserved favor with an eye to the steadfast covenant love of God. You can learn a lot about what repentance is from this psalm. And he says, according to your abundant mercy. That is, according to the ample compassion, God, that you have for the helpless. Blot out my transgressions. The words blot out refer to the scraping off or the removal of letters on a page. David is saying, God, my transgressions, my rebellious acts are written down on your cosmic page. Would you exercise compassion to the helpless, to me, And erase that entry from your book. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my adultery with Bathsheba. Blot out my murder of her husband. Blot out my sending Uriah's death sentence by Uriah's own hand to my field commander, Joab. 
Blot out my deceit and my lying and my selfishness and my lust. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, we have our third and fourth terms of pleading for forgiveness. Wash and cleanse. David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David is saying nothing less than, launder me, O God. I'm like a soiled, defiled garment that you need to wash with your cosmic bottle of Tide in your cosmic high-powered washing machine so that I will come out clean and I will come out purified. Now note very carefully something interesting in verses 1 and 2 that we need to see. Note that David in these verses uses three different words for his rebellion. He uses the words transgressions, iniquity, and sin. These are the very same trio of words that we find in Exodus 34.7 where God says that he is a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. It could be, and I think it is, that as David writes Psalm 51, he's got Exodus 34-7 in his mind. God, I am the guy now who is up to my eyeballs in iniquity, transgression, and sin. My rebellion is far and wide-reaching, and so I need three different words to describe it, but you, Lord, You described yourself in Exodus 34-7 as a God who forgives sinners like me. So I beg you, be faithful to your word. Have mercy. Blot out, wash, and cleanse me from my iniquity, transgression, and sin. Let's go to verse 3. Notice carefully here, friends, in verse 3, how David simply owns his stuff here. Again, we can learn a ton about what true repentance, God-honoring repentance, looks like from Psalm 51. David comes to grips with his own folly. He doesn't look at the person next to him. He looks at himself. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin." is ever before me. That is, what's the use in trying to fool myself or evade my sin or excuse my wrongdoing? I'm rotten, God, and I know it. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The 18th century pastor John Gill said that what David is saying in verse 3 is that his sin was staring him in the face. I like that. His sin was staring him in the face. David's sin, says Gil, gnawed, gnawed upon his conscience. It filled him with remorse and distress. There was no hiding from it. David owns his stuff here, as we, each of us, needs to own our sin before God. And then notice the amazing statement in verse 4. Don't miss this. David says to God in verse 4, Against you, he's praying to God, against you, you only, 
Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? David sees his sin here as focused primarily and focused particularly against God. We need to see this. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now surely, on the ground, on the horizontal, Bathsheba and Uriah and David himself and several others were affected by the sin of David. Right? David's sin was certainly against several people. There's no denying that. But even in that verse from 2 Samuel 12 that we focused on earlier, David says, after he hears Nathan's parable, I have sinned against the Lord. And David's prophet Nathan agreed with David's assessment of sin being primarily against God because in verse 9 of 2 Samuel 12, Nathan describes David's sin, listen, as despising the word of the Lord and doing what is evil in God's sight. David's sin had a theocentric focus, a God-centric focus. And this is profoundly instructive for us, friends. Sin is against God even though it is against people as well. This is the perspective of the Bible. Human thoughts, human words, human actions are always measured, listen, by a divine standard. And as Michael Byrd has put it in his recent book, Evangelical Theology, he says, all sin, rep- all sin represents a defiance of God's sovereignty, a deliberate contamination of his holiness, a perversion of his gift, a contempt for his goodness, and an insurrection against his justice. So David has it very right here. Against God, God only had he sinned and done what was evil in God's sight. Notice that the phrase, evil in your sight, in Psalm 51.4. This comes straight out of the Samuel story also. The Hebrew of 2 Samuel 11.27 says that in the eyes, listen, the eyes of the Lord, David's actions had been evil. And then in 2 Samuel 12, 9, Nathan tells David that what David had done was evil in God's sight. Did you know that the sight and the eyes of God are the only standard that really matters for human words, thoughts, and actions? It's not the sight or eyes of the world that we should primarily be concerned about, but rather the eyes and the sight of God. This is the sober, correct perspective that Scripture gives us. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words 
and blameless in your judgment. God in this latter part of verse 4 is pictured as both David's prosecutor and David's judge. God is justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. God brings words or speech against David, charging David with sin, and God brings the verdict also, judging David for his sin. David is effectively saying at the end of verse 4, Lord, your prosecution and your judgment are always right. I'm on my knees, on my face, and I'm admitting that your prosecution and judgment are always right. My case is before you. I submit to your prosecution and your judgment, come what may. This is part of what true repentance looks like. We must take careful notice of this. Verse 5. David says, Behold, or, as my Hebrew professor liked to say, zoom in with the camera. That's what behold indicates to us. Zoom in to something specific and now really worthy of of our close consideration. Behold, he says, I was brought forth. And the verb there has to do with writhing, as in childbirth. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now watch this. Up to this point in Psalm 51, David has been alluding, hasn't he, to specific sins and transgressions that he's committed as an adult. Things he'd done. But now in verse 5, David is saying, Indeed, I was born in a state of sin. Yes, from the very start of my existence, says David in verse 5, I was in a sinful condition. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What David is talking about in verse 5 is what he is as opposed to what he'd done. He's talking about what he is, and what he is is a sinner from birth. In terms of Christian doctrine... We would say that David is, what David's talking about in verse 5 is original sin. Original sin. The Christian doctrine of original sin, says J.I. Packer, he puts it so concisely, is this, that sinfulness, listen carefully, sinfulness, I know this is tremendously unpopular today, that sinfulness marks everyone from birth, And there is the form of a motivationally twisted heart prior to any actual sins. Packer says, the doctrine of original sin asserts that this inner sinfulness is the root and source of all actual sins. 
And finally, he says, this sinful condition derives to us in a real, though mysterious way, from Adam, our first representative before God. Packer says, the assertion of original sin makes the point that we are, listen, we are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners, born with a nature enslaved to sin. Each and every one of us is born, according to the teaching of Scripture, as prisoners of a corrupt nature to use the words of John Stott. Each of us is born with what Charles Wesley called a bent to sinning. Did you notice that in the second stanza of that great hymn that we sang this morning, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, the line from Wesley is, take away our bent to sinning, Alpha and Omega B. Charles Wesley understood original sin. David affirms in verse 5 of our psalm that he was bent towards sinning from birth, that he was born in the sphere or in the condition of sin, born, listen, already terminally ill with this disease or this condition called sin, which each of us are. We are, listen, we are helpless to extract ourselves from this condition. We need God to come. And rescue us, amen, to be for us what the hymn writer Augustus Toplady called the double cure for sin. The double cure. We can't cure ourselves, so God needs to come and cure us first of original sin, that horrid condition from birth, and second from the actual committed sins that each and every one of us participates in, which emanate from that condition called sin that we are born into, the double cure. And folks, the staggering, delicious news is that God has done this. You know that this morning. God has sent the rescue and the cure from heaven in a person named Jesus Christ. More on that later. But let's hasten onward in our psalm. Trust me, I'm not going to go this slow with all the verses or we'll be here all day. (laughs) Now, so far, we might think that Psalm 51 has just gone from gloomy to even more depressing, right? David has shown profound awareness of his sin. David has been pleading with God for forgiveness. David has admitted to being trapped in this condition called original sin, and thus David has despaired of himself and his own ability to help himself. And the question now is, well, where do we go from here? Is there any light in this rather gloomy tunnel? Let's go to verse 6. Notice carefully here that as verse 5 began with the camera zoom word, behold, so does verse 6. Now in verse 6, there's, there's something else that David wants us to behold, to zoom in on and pay really a close attention to, and that's this, that God delights in truth in the inward being 
And God teaches wisdom in the secret heart. So David goes from verse 5, where we had that picture of our seemingly hopeless condition, born into the condition of sin, prisoners to corruption, now to verse 6, where he affirms, notice what he does, he affirms God's desire to work truth and wisdom into the inner recesses and nooks and crannies of human personality. Behold, you delight God in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Friends, we may indeed be born into a condition called sin, but God, according to verse 6, is not willing to leave us there. God delights to shape us, to form us, so that his truth and his wisdom reside and take root and permeate our innards. Let's pause for a moment over this glorious verse, verse 6. There are two very interesting words in verse 6 in the original Hebrew. The first one is the word translated inward being. It's one word in Hebrew translated into the English inward being. God delights in truth in our inward being. The word in the original Hebrew has to do with what is obscured. What is obscured. Right now as you look up toward this pulpit and as you look at me, what is obscured from your sight are my liver and my lungs and my small intestine, my inward parts. And aren't you glad for that? The Hebrews often associated inward parts or inward organs with human understanding, with human conscience and human will. The theologian Stanley Walters is very helpful here. He says this, that the inward parts in Psalm 51.6 are, quote, all those bodily organs and entities associated with my ability to understand right and wrong and to choose either for or against. It is here in the inward parts that I possess moral knowledge, entertain moral disagreement, where I have the capacity to act even against what I believe to be morally true and correct, and to act in agreement with it, even when to do so is threatening. All this happens, he says, in those various inward parts. When David says that God delights in truth in the inward being, what he seems to be getting at is this, friends, that God delights to pour out his truth. Listen, he delights to pour out his truth into our understanding and truth into our willing. And God also delights in us thinking and speaking and acting truthful toward him from our insides out. He delights in truth in the inward parts, truth from himself to us and truth from us to him. Well, the second interesting Hebrew word in verse 6 is the word translated in the English Standard Version as secret. Now listen. The Lord teaches wisdom in the secret heart. Now track with me here. 
This is very interesting. The same word, the same Hebrew word, is used in Genesis 26.15 to talk about stopping up a water supply, plugging a water supply, or closing off a water supply so that the water no longer flows. Armies would often undertake the action of stopping up a water supply in order to hide that water supply from opposing armies, to keep it secret. The Lord teaches wisdom in the secret heart, in the closed off, plugged up sections of our being. And each and every one of us has them. I think that what David is getting at here in Psalm 51.6 is the fact that God desires access to every single part of us. Amen. Every single facet of us, even those parts of us that we may be keeping secret from others those parts of us that we've deemed off-limits, plugged up to others and perhaps to God, if that were possible. God wants to teach wisdom right there in those secret, plugged-up, off-limits places in our lives and our inner beings. He wants, this is what he wants, he wants to overcome disobedience, all shreds of it, in every part of us, and to renew our minds holistically so that we then live as people who from the inside corners of our beings to the external us are genuine people of truth and wisdom. Amen? Not people who wear masks and maintain those masks, but people who are genuine, broken sinners before God walking in truth and wisdom. As Stanley Walter says so beautifully, God's commitment is to enter the innermost sphere of my understanding and choosing, there to let me know wisdom. This is wisdom in the hidden place. This is how I will set aside the negative influence of original sin and win the victory over its subversion of God's will for my life, transformation through the renewing of my mind. Romans 12.2. David continues in verse 7. We're going to motor through here quickly. Purge me, or quite literally, unsin me. That's quite literally what the word says here. Unsin me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. The pictures that David is drawing from here are the pictures given in places like Leviticus 14 and Numbers 19, where unclean persons or leprous persons were sprinkled by a priest with a bunch of hyssop that was soaked in either water or in blood, and thereby the sprinkled people became clean. David wants God to act as his priest, to cleanse him with hyssop. David wants God's forgiving cleansing. Verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Yeah, Lord, just... Give me a word that I'm forgiven so that I can enter the sanctuary again and hear the joy and gladness there. And he says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. 
Now, the broken bones that David says that God gave him are probably to be understood here as David's pangs of conscience over his sin and also the consequences that David experienced as a result of his sin. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David essentially repeats now the petitions that he'd made back in the first two verses of the psalm. He wants God to hide his face from David's sin, to lose awareness of David's sin by hiding his face. And then verse 10, a verse that many of us know very well. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now what we need to notice here, friends, is that David moves well beyond just wanting forgiveness from God. He wants forgiveness, of course, but now his plea is wider and much more grand. David says, in effect, God, renovate me. That's what he's saying here. Change my very heart. Do a mighty work, Lord, so that the very way that my life gravitates from here on out is toward you from the inside out and away from my sin. Now what's fascinating here, we need to note, is the word create, which in the original Hebrew is a verb that is found only in the Bible in connection with God. Only God can do the action of this particular verb, create. No human can do this. And so the verb is found only when God is doing the work. And so God creates, same verb, at the start of Genesis. And this creating that God does at the start of Genesis is far above human ability. I hope you'd agree. This creating at the start of Genesis is where he brings into existence what was not there before. Where chaos and darkness had been, God brings light and God brings order and he brings material amazingness into being. The very pews you're sitting on are from trees that God created. The use of the same verb create in Psalm 51.10 would suggest, would it not, that what is needed, listen, what is needed for us human beings in our condition is nothing short of a divine creation moment where the darkness and the chaos and the formlessness and the void of our condition of original sin that each of us has been born into is broken wide open by the blazing light of Almighty God and is ordered and is put right and is enlivened and is worked upon mightily by God. David in verse 10 is praying for nothing less than God's creative, renewing, enlivening, renovating, liberating work in his life. And oh, how the world needs this right now. The prayer of repentance of David has moved well beyond simply asking for forgiveness. David wants nothing short of a renovation of self to happen. Otherwise, he's going to simply fall back into the same sinful patterns that got him here in the first place. Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David, 
cannot bear the pain of having God absent from his life, of having God unengaged with his life. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then we have verses 13 through 15, which give us now David's vow. Notice this. David makes a vow. He he makes a commitment to God of what David will do should David be forgiven. Of his sin. David says, Then, after I'm forgiven, I will teach transgressors your ways. Presumably, your ways of forgiveness, God, that I have received myself. I will teach transgressors about your grace, about your loyal covenant love, about your abundant mercy. And, says David, sinners will return to you. He's confident of that. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. This is as close as we get in the psalm to a confession of what the sin is. David had murdered Uriah as a result of his adultery. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. David vows here that singing about God and singing to God, which we do every Sunday, is going to flow out of him if God delivered him from blood guiltiness. And then verses 15 and 16. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. David knows that as long as he remains an unforgiven sinner... His fellowship sacrifices to God could only be offered in a hypocritical posture and God will not be pleased with those sacrifices. Fellowship sacrifices, which verse 16 is talking about, could only be offered by forgiven sinners if those fellowship sacrifices were to be pleasing to God. And so what can David do? Listen, friends. He can simply throw his whole broken self at God, which he does in verse 17. And God will accept that broken, damaged offering. A broken self is the only damaged offering that God will accept. God will accept a broken David as a sacrifice because the brokenness, listen, is an indication that God is having his way. The brokenness is an indication that the renovation that David desired in verse 10 is now happening. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. This is a verse we do well to memorize. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The brokenness and the contriteness that David talks about here are indications of his remorse, indications of his shame, indications of his being humbled, indications of his broken self-will, indications of his repentance, and, and in general, indications of God's work 
in his life. And God delights in such sacrifices. It was the tax collector who cried out, Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner! He's the one who went home justified before God, not the together, strong, self-assured Pharisee who's looking in the mirror singing how great thou art to himself. Here's what God's after, friends. God is after what John Gill described as a person who is humbled under a sense of their sin, who has true repentance for that sin, a person who is smitten, are you smitten this morning, wounded and broken with sin by the word of God in the hand of the Spirit, which is a hammer to break the rock in pieces. Gill said, God wants people who grieve for sin as committed against a God of love. People who are broken and melted down, I love it, melted down under a sense of sin, in a view, says Gill, of pardoning grace and mourning for it while beholding a pierced and wounded Savior. The sacrifices of such a broken heart and contrite spirit are the sacrifices God desires, approves, accepts of, and delights in. Close quote. So if you this morning are a person who is broken over sin, fragile, wrecked, that's a good place to be. God will not despise your broken spirit and your contrite heart. So present yourself to him as a broken, living sacrifice. David ends Psalm 51 with the words, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Because ultimately, whatever whatever God is going to do in the king's life who had sinned, he's going to do for the corporate people that the king is leading. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, as we've seen this morning, Psalm 51 is certainly about David. Certainly about David's repentance over his sin with Bathsheba. In many ways, God gives us a model in Psalm 51 of what true repentance is, what it must look like, and all of us would do well, I think, to meditate on Psalm 51 often as we consider the shape of our own repentance before God. But on another level, I take Psalm 51 as David praying In an ultimate sense, even if David could not have known what he was praying for, David in Psalm 51 is praying for the coming of his own descendant, Jesus Christ, who would come so many generations after David. Jesus is what David really wants. The mercy that David wanted so badly for his sin, the blotting out of his transgressions, the washing and cleansing, not only from his actual sins, but from original sin, the transformation that David desired that included God working truth and wisdom in David's inward secret parts and creating a clean heart and right spirit in David. All of this, friends, would come to full flower in the ultimate sense 
in Jesus Christ, David's great descendant. It's Jesus who came into the world to do what David prays for in Psalm 51, to save us from our sins, according to Matthew 121, to be the double cure for the original sin that plagues us and for the actual sins that we all commit. The salvation from sin that David yearned for in Psalm 51 comes ultimately and comes with full finality in a person named Jesus of Nazareth. And it's Jesus who comes himself and pronounces forgiveness on people in places like Mark 2 and in Luke 7, to which people respond in amazement, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus shows himself to be the God of Exodus 34-7, come in the flesh, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And Jesus says, just before he dies on the cross, that his blood is the blood of the covenant. Listen, poured out for many, for what? For the forgiveness of sins. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that provides the full and final washing and cleansing that David yearned for in Psalm 51. First, First John 1.7 affirms as much when it shouts to us, listen, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us, what David wanted, from how many sins? All sin. And so, friend, my question to you this morning, don't look at anybody else. Ask yourself, are you washed in the blood of Jesus Christ this morning? Do you have assurance that your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and therefore no longer apply to you? With the Apostle Peter in Acts 10.43, I say to you today that everyone who believes, listen, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. That's your main problem, that you're a sinner against God. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What David prayed for in Psalm 51 is yours in Jesus Christ. And with the Apostle Paul in Acts 13.38, I say to you that only through this man, through Christ Jesus, is the forgiveness of sins proclaimed, or as Ephesians 1.7 has it, in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see, the believer is happily unlike David. David had to wait around anxiously for a prophet to come along and give him word of the forgiveness of God. But as believers in Jesus, we have the assurance of the forgiveness of God from God himself in 1 John 1, 9, which promises us this, that if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So today, bring to Jesus your repentant self. Bring your broken spirit and your contrite heart to him and there find forgiveness And find acceptance. And remember that the very first requirement of human beings that ever rolled off the lips of the incarnate Jesus was the requirement, repent. Do it today.
Turn to him in your brokenness. Turn away from your sin. Despair of yourself and fly to Jesus Christ and there find forgiveness and the transforming power to create in you a clean heart. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take this feeble offering that I have brought today and work it, work your word into the hearts and minds of every person in listening range. If there is someone here today who has not said yes to you and received you as Lord and Savior, I pray, Holy Spirit, that in your power you would do that that you would bring a sinner into the fold and family of God, adopt him or her as a son or daughter, right this very hour is my prayer. Lord, we're praying for your power to be at work. We thank you for Jesus, for the shed blood, for the forgiveness of our sins. Where would we be without the Son of God? I pray, Lord, continue to do your work today in Jesus' name. Amen.